All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah, you know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. Right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over coffee. coffee. So we are now, I think, on part three, Nick, of our huge uh, episode, I guess, parts for diabetes and how to treat them. And today we're actually going to talk about insulin and diabetes. So what are our learning objectives for today? So today we're first going to review some history of synthetic insulin. We're going to describe then some various types and actions of all of the types of insulin you might run into. And then we'll talk a bit about how to initiate and modify insulin therapy, particularly for pregnant patients, because that's where we tend to spend most of the time doing this. So Faye, um, let's get into it first. What exactly is insulin? Yeah, so insulin is a peptide hormone that's produced by the pancreatic beta cells, and it regulates metabolism by promoting absorption of glucose from the blood into the liver fat and muscle for these cells to convert to glycogen or fat. Um, simultaneously, it's also a strong inhibitor of gluconeogenesis in the liver, which makes sense if you have insulin around because you're soaking up glucose, you don't want to make more glucose. Now, you know, how did we get to synthetic insulin? And again, I really like, you know, talking about the history of some of these medical things. Um, and I am going to apologize in advance because I'm definitely going to butcher some of these names. But to kind of go through the history, we first start in the 19th century. So in 1869, Paul Langerhans, yes, that Langerhans, where those cells are named after, um, he identified small tissue clumps through the bulk of, pan of the pancreas, not previously described in Western literature. And these were then named the islets of Langerhans where the beta cells are clustered. Then in 1889, Joseph von Mehring um, removed the pancreas from a healthy dog and identified sugar in the urine, which was later isolated to the function of the islets of Langerhans. Um, then going into the 20th century in 1916, Nikolai Palescu develops a pancreatic extract that normalizes blood sugar in diabetic dogs. And then several years later in 1921, Frederick Bangtig and Charles Best isolated extracts from islets in dogs and later moved towards experiments in cows. Then in 1922, Leonard Thompson um, 
a 14-year-old Canadian boy actually received the very first injection of insulin from cows. But unfortunately, this injection was so impure that he actually suffered a severe allergic reaction. Um, he then had another injection 12 days later, and that actually was noted to eliminate his glucosuria. Um, and then the same year, the team of researchers that recognized the need for quality control and safe distribution um, made a pact uh, to, patient, to patent insulin and transfer it to a public university. And then they ended up settling on the University of Toronto, which bought the patent to insulin and the purification process of bovine insulin in 1923 for a dollar. Um, Banting and another fellow, J.R.R. McLeod, would share the 1923 Nobel Prize for this work. And then finally, um, more than 50 years later, in 1978, the first synthetic human insulin was engineered in E. coli with recombinant DNA technology by the Beckman Research Institute and Genentech. Um, Genentech would then go on to sell the first commercially available form of this, which was called Humulin. Um, so today there are, you know, obviously multiple types of insulin that's used for control of diabetes, all of which are synthetic forms. Um, but unfortunately, unlike those people who initially sold their patent for a dollar, shared among uh, these different types of insulin is the absurdly high cost. Um, fortunately, new legislation has spurred the reduction in costs, which will start benefiting patients this year, um, which is known as the Inflation Reduction Act of 2023. And this has capped the cost of insulin at $35 a month for all Medicare beneficiaries. Um, and then Eli Lilly subsequently also announced on March 1st of this year that they are also capping out-of-pocket insulin costs at $35 per month. And so if you don't know it yet, um, there's actually a great website called www.insulinaffordability.com that will allow all patients, regardless of insurance status, to procure Lilly-branded insulin at that cost, $35 a month. And some of these prices changes will not take effect, though, until later in 2023. Of note, um, other makers of insulin, so Sanofi, who makes Lantis, capped the cost of Lantis at $35 a month as of March 16th, and Novo Nordisk, that makes Novolog, will also follow with plans to implement cost lowering on its insulin products in January 1st, 2024. All right, so that's a lot of history um, and not a lot about insulin itself. So let's now actually start talking about the medicine of insulin. So we know that there's different types of insulin, right? Um, Nick, so talk to us about those different types and what the what they mean. Yeah, so broadly speaking with insulin, there are five main types. There's ultra-long-acting insulin, long-acting or basal insulin, intermediate-acting, short-acting, and then rapid-acting. We're going to condense these down for our discussion today into just three categories for ease. So we're going to call them basal or long-acting insulin, intermediate insulin, and then short-acting slash rapid-acting insulin. So again, three categories, long, medium, short, essentially. Before we get into those categories, though, I do want to start off to just have a discussion that you're going to see on bottles of insulin or some things that we prescribe, um, something mentioned that's like U200 or U500, for example. And what this means, basically, is that they're ultra-concentrated. Typically, insulin in rapid-acting forms is concentrated at 100 units per ml, and that's abbreviated as U100 insulin, so that is your standard insulin. 
If you see U500 just as an example, that means that the concentration is now 500 units of insulin in 1 ml, or 5 times more concentrated than U100. These formulations specifically are helpful for patients who have really high insulin requirements, um, and they're kind of available across the spectrum of long to rapid-acting insulins. Okay, now that we've sort of laid out our categories, Faye, um, let's start off in talking about those that first category, the long-acting or basal insulins. Yes, so these long-acting insulins provide a low-peak sustained coverage of insulin over multiple hours or even days. Um, a lot of times these get referred to as the background coverage, so to speak, of insulins. So basically, it just means that there's always some insulin on board when you're using this type of insulin. And it can control things like your fasting blood sugar values. Long-acting coverage is obtained by modifying the base insulin molecule with an amino acid substitution or linking to other molecules to really slow that absorption. There are a few varieties that you may have heard of. And so um, there's deck Decludec, which has the brand name Traceba, um, which has a long duration of action of 42 hours. And it minimizes the plasma concentration variability with once daily dosing. And so there's really no noticeable peak of action. So really minimal nocturnal hypoglycemia that we see with this type. The next variety is Glargine, which we probably are more familiar with because those brand names are things like Lantus, Basaglar, 2JO, Semgly, for example. And the duration of action of Glargine is 24 hours with a half-life of 12 hours. So some individuals, especially potentially in pregnancy, can benefit from BID dosing. And again, there's no noticeable peak of action. And the last variety is Detamir, which we may also hear about where the brand name is Levamir. And the duration of action is usually less than 24 hours, and so it often does require BID dosing, particularly in type 1 diabetes or pregnancy. And there is a small peak effect at around 6 to 8 hours post-injection. Yeah, so as the name implies, um, these insulins are not quite enough in terms of their action to provide full coverage through the day but in practice are often employed in multiple injection therapies for basically covering fasting and nighttime sugar levels. There are two primary varieties of intermediate-acting insulin. The first is neutral protein Hagedorn, or NPH, which is a suspension of insulin, protamine, and zinc inside of a buffered solution that basically helps to delay the release of insulin into the bloodstream. And so sometimes you'll hear patients refer to NPH if they're using it as cloudy insulin because of it's being suspended in this buffered solution, basically. The duration of action of NPH is around 14 to 16 hours. So if you're using it for basal coverage, it really does require BID dosing. But there is a pretty significant peak effect that occurs at about four to six hours after you inject NPH. If you give NPH at night, often a bedtime snack is really required to help avoid nocturnal hypoglycemia because of that peak effect. And then sometimes with NPH, there can also be something that's called a dawn effect that's quite pronounced. So basically, because the peak happens maybe two, three hours before somebody wakes up, you're actually ending up losing some of the effect of that peak. Um, and so the fasting concentrations may actually be above target. This can 
though, be mixed with regular insulin or rapid-acting insulin to minimize the number of daily injections. One of the things, though, that you should counsel patients on in terms of injections is that you want to draw up your rapid-acting insulin first before the NPH, so that way you don't inject that buffer solution into the rapid-acting insulin vial. That'll be part of what your diabetic nurse educators talk to the patients about, but something that you can do to check in on just to make sure the patient's drawing up correctly if you're not seeing results with this. The second intermediate acting insulin is actually the U500 form of regular insulin. We're going to talk more about regular insulin in a moment, but U500 is again that five-fold concentrated form. The duration of action is about 20 hours, but has a peak effect that's pretty quick of about four hours. It's similar to NPH in principle, but has a quicker peak onset. Now these generally don't get used too frequently with type 2 diabetes, but because the GLP-1 agonists that we talked about in the last episode, those injectable medications like Ozempic, um, are not used in pregnancy, you may encounter these in those patients who need a lot of insulin and may have used GLP-1 agonists before pregnancy. Um, it's important to recognize with U500 regular insulin that given this high concentration, um, again, the pharmacokinetics of this ultimately are actually closer to an intermediate than a short-acting. So again, don't prescribe U500 for short-acting purposes. This is really an intermediate-acting insulin. But actually speaking of that, Faye, let's jump now to talk about the varieties of short or rapid-acting insulins. So these short or rapid-acting insulins are intended to provide rapid coverage, typically in response to like mealtime insulin demands. Um, these are also the insulins that you would see in insulin drips and insulin pumps because they rapidly change blood glucose concentrations. And if you give them IV or constantly sub-Q, um, then they need to be frequently titrated to maintain a good control. So the varieties include one, regular insulin. So human insulin is complexed with zincs and slightly delays absorption. And so the duration of action is about eight hours with a peak effect at about two to three hours. This can be challenging in terms of timing because postprandial rise in blood sugar usually occurs at that one to two hour mark after eating. And because of this, some folks using regular insulin may have post-meal hypoglycemia if they eat meals not containing a lot of carbs and fat. The next type is that rapid-acting insulin. So this, you know, you probably heard of as like Aspart or Lispro or even Glulacine. All are human insulin analogs with amino acid modifications to facilitate rapid absorption. And the duration of action is four hours with a peak effect at one hour. And this is the preferred insulin, for example, in insulin pumps, because most of the algorithms driving pump management are built on rapid-acting insulin pharmacokinetics. And just recognize that when correcting with rapid-acting insulin, you're only going to get a peak effect at one hour. So be really careful with redosing frequently because when patients see that they have a high sugar, they may want to keep giving themselves insulin and that you can stack an insulin effect and cause actually hypoglycemia um, in that you know one hour mark from when you give yourself the insulin. We're also going to be saving intrapartum glucose management because I think you know that's going to be using this rapid acting insulin uh, for another episode. All right, I think you know, Nick, we've talked about all the different types of insulin, but I think like the thing that our listeners really want to know, is they want to know, you know, how do we actually dose or how do we start or give insulin um, for our patients? Yeah. Before we get there, again, most of the time the OBGYN is starting insulin in the context of pregnancy. So 
kind of in speaking about insulin therapy in pregnancy, you know, what you want to know is that in the first trimester, you can actually see a slight dip in insulin requirements in the first trimester, which is particularly pronounced at about 10 weeks. But then at 10 to 12 weeks, insulin needs start to increase really rapidly thanks to the action of the placenta, that human placental lactogen and progesterone really driving that insulin resistance that's important for the fetus. But by the end of pregnancy, somebody with type 1 diabetes should expect to be using about two to three times the amount of insulin that they required pre-pregnancy. And if someone's got type 2 diabetes, this actually can be a three to six-fold increase in insulin requirements versus baseline. So this is pretty substantial. And we'll have a graph on the website that kind of shows you exactly how significant this is. And then probably the coolest thing I think about diabetes and pregnancy physiology is just that once that placenta is out, those concentrations of those hormones fall rapidly. And likewise, you see an immediate drop off in the insulin requirements with delivery. Um, once that placenta is out, basically they return to a pre-pregnancy state and it's pretty remarkable how fast it occurs. So postpartum tends to be a pretty significant period of changes and a danger zone for hypoglycemia if we're not watching insulin really closely. Now, historically with pregnancy and diabetes control, if we're initiating insulin, we've employed a so-called split mix regimen. And we covered this on our previous episode with Dr. Kustan on gestational diabetes. And we'll relink that algorithm on our website in the show notes for this episode. But this is built off of using an NPH for a basal coverage and then using regular or rapid acting insulins for mealtime coverage. The nice thing about this is that they're really cheap insulins at baseline and you can sometimes get away with just doing twice a day injections, which can be palatable for patients. The disadvantages of this type of regimen, though, are number one, using NPH for basal control, as we discussed sort of those challenges with the peak effect issues of NPH, particularly with overnight sugars. Um, the fasting control, again, because of NPH, you might need to split this into three injections with the NPH taken just before bed to help to improve that fasting control if the nighttime peak just is too early. But again, you have the risk of nocturnal hypoglycemia. And so these can sometimes be a little challenging to do and require a lot of counseling of patients in terms of the timing of their eating, particularly that high protein bedtime snack to avoid that hypoglycemia. Now to say it out loud, but again, on the website, we're going to have the algorithms in the context of gestational diabetes and type two diabetes. You're going to start a split mix regimen by taking the patient's weight in kilograms and multiplying that by 0.7 to 1. Um, this is based on the trimester and the patient's underlying insulin resistance. But again, the weight in kilograms times somewhere between 0.7 and 1 is going to give you your total daily dose of insulin. You can split that into two-thirds, that'll be the AM dose, and one-third, that'll be the PM dose. And in your morning, two-thirds of that should be NPH, and one-third should be rapid-acting. That NPH is going to cover your morning into lunchtime, and the one-third is going to cover your breakfast. The PM dose should be split half and half, typically. Again, with the NPH covering your overnight, and the other half, the rapid-acting, covering your dinner time. 
You may find some folks needing less rapid acting and more basal. So again, you may see some different advice about how to split out that PM dose, but classically it's a half and half split. Okay, so again, head to the website to see exactly how that's done. We've got a really nice algorithm up there that can help you sort of reason through this and just not listen to my voice through it. But what we didn't talk about the last time we talked about how to do insulin fay was sort of this, um, I hesitate to call it newer, but I guess it is newer in terms of a basal bolus regimen. Yeah, and I think we're starting to see this more and more um, because this usually combines a newer, longer-acting basal insulin with rapid-acting insulin to cover meal times. And the advantage is, is that for patients with gestational diabetes and type 2 diabetes, basal insulin may be all that's needed for some individuals with appropriate lifestyle counseling and can really just lead to that one-time-a-day insulin injection. The basal uh, types of insulin also provides more stable overnight coverage, and then rapid-acting insulin will allow for individual meal titrations, whereas with the split mix, your AM and pH-covered lunch, and, you know, what if you're, you know, really nauseous that day and you just decide that you don't want to eat lunch? The disadvantages for this is that for patients with gestational diabetes and type 2 diabetes in particular – we may want to titrate insulin more slowly, not because it's something that the patient actually needs, but because we're afraid of dropping them. And so we may actually be slower in getting these folks to the control that they need to actually be get to. And then, of course, this is going to require four to five daily injections because most basal insulins cannot be mixed with rapid-acting insulins, and that's really inconvenient for your patient. In terms of how to start this types of, type of regimen, um, again, it's specifically in the context of, of gestational diabetes or type 2 diabetes in pregnancy. So first, you're going to do the same thing like you did before, which is where you take your weight in kilograms and multiply it by 0.7 to 1, and that's going to be based on the trimester or underlying insulin resistance to get your totally, total daily insulin dose. And then you're going to split this to 50% basal and 50% mealtime coverage. And based on your insulin of choice, your basal could be injected once or twice daily. And the rapid mealtime coverage is then split into TID. But again, this dose might vary by time of day and the number of carbs that the patients eat because, you know, as some patients may eat less for breakfast and more for dinner. And for even tighter control, rather than a set number of units with mealtime coverage, patients can actually calculate the dose to give themselves with a carb ratio. But this really does require a very well-educated patient who is motivated to do that. You can approximate carb ratios for mealtime coverage using the rule of 500. So, so you're going to take 500 divided by your total daily dose of insulin. Um, that's going to equal the number of grams of carbs covered by one unit of insulin. So if my expected total daily dose of insulin is 50 units, then my carb ratio should be 1 to 10. So giving yourself one unit for every 10 grams of carbs that you're eating. And then again, like we said before, some folks may only need that basal coverage to get controlled, and that's great, and that's okay. And you can sometimes start at some reasonable dose of basal insulin, then have the patient increase by two units every other day until fastings are under 95. And then you can reassess mealtime control at that point and the need for mealtime insulin. I think one of the biggest questions that I get from my residents, Nick, is, you know, how do I titrate insulin? Like, is it all just by feels and vibes? But like, how do we know to go up just by two? But is two too little? Should we go up by four or six? So what do you tell your residents? Yeah, I mean, 
I have to say that MFM is all about the vibes, first of all. So uh, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't make sense, but there is some science to this stuff, actually. So first, I want to reassure everybody to say that small steps are okay. And generally speaking, when we're adjusting some amount of insulin, doing small amounts, like no more than about 10% in terms of a change or a step, is really the most frequent way to do this. So if somebody's injecting usually like 10 units of insulin, then 10% of 10 is one more unit. So maybe you add one or two units in response to that, basically. If you're finding that somebody has globally high or globally low blood sugars, one important thing to consider in addition to the dose of insulin is to consider the timing of your basal insulin. And it may be that you just need to adjust the timing of the basal insulin um, in order to help facilitate this, again, particularly if your patient is using NPH for their basal coverage. If you're finding that patients have situationally high sugars, recall that pregnancy can change some GI physiology that can make insulin timing kind of challenging. One example of this can be delayed gastric emptying. So again, slow GI motility, food hits later, that peak kind of sugar of the meal might actually be a little bit later than when they start eating. And so some patients may actually need to pre-bolus their rapid insulin, taking the dose 30 to 45 minutes before a meal. So that way the insulin is peaking at the same time the meal peaks ultimately, trying to get those to coincide better. And that's something that we frequently will counsel particularly type 1 diabetes patients about um, because of that slowed emptying, not just of pregnancy, but sometimes of type 1 diabetes itself. And nausea is another really big issue in pregnancy, right? Faye mentioned that earlier with NPH of like, gosh, what if I don't eat lunch and now I have all this insulin on board? So sometimes if you're using rapid insulin, you can split the dose up into kind of micro boluses. So say like, huh, maybe I'll do the pre-bolus 30 to 45 minutes before of like 20%. And then right before I eat, if I feel good, I'll inject the rest. But if I'm not feeling so good, maybe I'll just start to eat and see how much of my meal I actually consume. Again, in folks who have like pumps and stuff like that, you can often just set a setting to where they start off giving themselves 20% and then the pump like slowly infuses the rest of the 80% or something like that. Um, but for folks who are doing multiple injections, that may give them a little bit more flexibility to say, okay, well maybe give yourself a little micro bolus as the pre-bolus and then right before your meal, depending on how you're feeling, you can inject the rest. The other thing that I think is helpful, Faye, is knowing um, the insulin correction factor. And I think on the floor, this is one of those things that's like, okay, I just got paged for a blood sugar of 264. How much insulin do I need to give this patient to get this back down? Yeah, so the insulin correction factor is basically what is the expected blood sugar drop in milligrams per deciliter for every one unit of correctional insulin given. So um, an insulin correction factor, an ICF of 50, means that your blood sugar is going to drop by 50 for every unit of correctional insulin given. So in the case that you talked to us about, Nick, if we're targeting a blood sugar of 100 and their blood sugar is like 250, for example, or 260, then we're going to have to give them uh, essentially three units of insulin to bring them down to that 100, right? Now, ICF, or insulin correction factor, is a function of expected total daily dose of insulin. And so um, 
roughly for type 1 diabetics, we use the rule of 1800. So that's where you take 1800, you divide it by the total daily dose of insulin in units, and that's your expected ICF. For type 2 and Gestational diabetics, we use the rule of 1500, where you take 1500 and divide it by your total daily dose, and then that's your expected ICF. So again, you know, if I'm taking 50 units of total insulin a day, I would have a correction factor of 30, meaning one unit of insulin would bring my blood sugar down by about 30 milligrams per deciliter. And this is really helpful for the floor. So if you need to cover someone, you know their total daily insulin dose or approximating it by using their weight, this can really help you provide a more reliable amount of insulin. I think, you know, we've talked about all of this, Nick, but really I think at the very end we have to like give a little disclaimer because while we'd love to provide this as like the guide, um, as the end-all be-all of all insulin treatment, um, since, you know, it's been pretty consistent across places that we've trained, we don't want to say that you should substitute this for true medical advice because some folks may just be more insulin sensitive, particularly those with long-standing type 1 diabetes with comorbidities comorbidities or, you know, insulin naive folks like those with gestational diabetes. Um, So these are just some good starting rules that are generally helpful, but your mentors can definitely help guide you with more complex or concerning scenarios. All right. So I think that brings us to the end of this episode about complicated insulin and insulin dosing. So let's go ahead and summarize. Yeah. So we started off again by reviewing that insulin is a peptide hormone produced by pancreatic beta cells. Um, And really it works by helping promote absorption of glucose from the blood into the liver, fat, and muscle, as well as to simultaneously inhibit gluconeogenesis in the liver. The saga of insulin is a long story dating back all the way to the 19th century um, in terms of the discovery and ultimately the production of synthetic human insulin. Today there are multiple types um, and importantly remember that there are new insulin price caps that are going into effect this year in 2023 and next year. One website where you can look at that for particularly Lilly branded insulin is insulinaffordability.com that caps patients costs at $35 a month regardless of their insurance status. In terms of types of insulin, broadly speaking, there are five main types, ultra-long-acting, long-acting, intermediate-acting, short-acting, and rapid-acting. We are just going to be talking about the basal, intermediate, and short or rapid-acting insulins just for ease of understanding. And then just remember that when you see that U200 or U500, these stand for ultra-concentrated. In terms of the long-acting basal insulins, the varieties that we talked about were Deglutec or brand name Traceba, Glargine or brand names like Lantus, Basaglar, Semgli, Tegeo, and Dedimir, brand name Levamir. Again, these all roughly, with the exception of Levamir, have no peak of action. So the nice thing is that they often can be once or just twice daily dosing and minimize hypoglycemia versus the rapid-acting insulins. We then talked about immediate acting insulins, and the ones that we talked about are neutral protein Hagedorn, or NPH, as we know it usually, as well as the U500 regular insulin. These types of insulin usually has an intermediate type timing in terms of duration of action, so anywhere between 14 to 20 hours, and there usually is a peak effect somewhere between four to six hours. And so these medications can be given to help with basal coverage, but oftentimes need to be given twice a day. And then finally, the short or rapid-acting insulins. These include regular insulin as well as the rapid-acting insulins like Aspart, Lispro, and Glulysine. Again, these have peak effects that are pretty quick. 
the rapid actings in one hour and regular insulin in two to three hours and overall have a short duration of action. So these are the things that you're going to use for mealtime coverage and are the preferred insulin in insulin pumps. You have to be careful with these though because again they're pretty potent and pretty quick so your patients can have hypoglycemia in response. We're going to have a graph on the website going through all of the peak and duration of actions of all of these insulins. In terms of approach to insulin therapy, we know that in pregnancy, while there can be a slight decrease in insulin requirements in the first trimester, as soon as that placenta starts to kick in around 10 to 12 weeks, insulin needs can begin to skyrocket. So by the end of pregnancy in type 1 diabetics, the needs can be two to three times what they previously used. And in type 2 diabetics, it can be three to six times what they previously used. But remember, postpartum, after the loss of that placenta, that the insulin needs are going to rapidly decrease. In terms of how to dose pregnancy, insulin. We've traditionally employed a split mix regimen that we covered in a previous episode with Dr. Kustan that is based off of NPH for basal coverage and regular or rapid acting insulin for mealtime coverage. And this is all based on weight and we will be posting this on our website. More and more though, we're seeing folks utilize a basal bolus regimen, which is using one of those longer acting basal insulins with rapid acting insulin to cover mealtimes. And these potentially have the advantage over the split mix regimen is to, in avoiding some of that nighttime hypoglycemia, um, but can ultimately require four to five daily injections. So some folks may not really love that. Um, again, on our website, we're going to have an algorithm-based approach to starting a basal bolus regimen. Remember, in a basal bolus regimen, you can approximate a carb ratio for mealtime coverage using the rule of 500. So 500 divided by the total daily dose gives you your carb ratio. In terms of titration of insulin and how to do it, remember that small steps are okay and we usually will change insulin only by about 10% each time. You can think generally if there are global highs to try and change your basal and if there are situational highs like mealtimes, you can change your short acting. It's also really important to know about your insulin correction factor. So knowing exactly how much one unit of correctional insulin is going to drop your blood sugar. All right, I think that brings us to the end of this episode, Nick. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsRiverCoff1, at Facebook and Instagram at CreogsRiverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can go ahead and go into our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsRiverCoffee. Critically important for this episode are those show notes, which remember are always on our website at CreogsRiverCoffee.com, along with the Rosh Review Question of the Week. And if you have a suggestion for us, if you have a correction for the show or just want to say hi, go ahead and email us at CreogsRiverCoffee at gmail.com.